Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode. Means that spouses are called to be more committed to one another than anyone else, 
secular commitment to God. Number four, sex is a good and enjoyable gift from God. One of its purposes is procreation. Come out around here. And if, if God gives children to parents, they become responsible for raising them and teaching them to love God and love other people. And finally, marriage is not a rom-com. It isn't about getting one's needs satisfied, but it's a type of self-giving love that displays the self-giving love of Christ. Pretty much summed it up there. Hit about 80% of it. There's more to dive in, there's nuance, but it's fairly simple and straightforward. But what makes it complicated is trying to live that stuff out in the complexity of the 21st century. And so tonight,
Like, why are you applying market principles to mating dynamics, right? Uh, but I believe that it's actually illuminating for some of the things that we see happening today in our culture. Men's greater desire for sex generates a demand in market terms for sex in our culture, since uh, men taken together as a whole want that more. While uh, women, uh, <clears throat> women, on the other hand, control the supply side of the equation, since their team, by and large, determines when they'll let men access their bodies. Now, some bristle today at this idea of women being the gatekeeper in the relationship, but statistically, this still holds true. Uh, you think even just popular example of like the player at the club, right, who still expects he's got to put in the work and probably at least buy a few drinks if she's going to be willing to go home with him, whereas on her end, all she likely needs to do is give a wink and there will be multiple men ready to go home with her. So supply and demand, historically within this uh, reality, sex was expensive, meaning what men had to give was high. The price they had to pay in terms of commitment and investment and being all in was high. One major reason for this was pregnancy. Women uh, bore the risk of waking up nine months later with mouths to feed and with him long gone playing any role in this. So because of this, women, their families, and society as a whole tended to demand a high cost or a high level of commitment that men had to give in order to enter into a sexual relationship. That women, by and large, were saying, hey, if you want to sleep with me, you got to commit to me, and you got to commit to me before our family, before our society, before our government, before God, uh, saying that I'm going to be with you, good times and bad, sickness and health, till death do us part. You have to enter covenant, right? That was kind of the historic norm in societies around the world. So the cost was high, and men were willing to pay it. Well, what changed? Well, economics and sex will point to three significant market disruptors that have changed things over the last few decades. Uh, the first one would be birth control. Uh, birth control, talking here about the pill, IUD, modern hormonal contraception, and other forms of modern contraception, what these essentially have done is removed uh, children from the equation. It's possible for a couple to make love without concern for making babies. It's possible for her to hook up without fear of getting knocked up. And in essence, what this has done is union has become divided from multiplication and the procreative dynamic and element of sex. More than anything, this has probably been the major factor in lowering the cost, so to speak, by lowering the risks of sex outside of marriage. It has therefore made it more easily accessible, dropped the cost in our culture. The second market disruptor is high-res porn, high-res pornography, which is very different from uh, your dad's Playboy back in the day when I was a kid, right? Different in a couple ways. One is how realistic it is that increasingly, especially even now with virtual technology, uh, the ability to simulate more and more something like the real experience for those involved. A second distinction is its accessibility, that it is now as close as the phone in your pocket, 24-7, day or night available. And the third is its endless novelty, 
that there are endless genres and subgenres accommodating any fetish and uh, increasingly building upon each other as people get sucked down the rabbit hole. Now, this has been horrible in our culture. It's led to an epidemic of sexual addiction, of rewiring the brains of entire generation of people growing up in this culture, and uh, really damaging actual relationships with flesh and blood, physical people in marriage and dating and so on. Uh, but for the purpose of what we're talking about here, both men and women use porn, uh, but men substantially more. And this has also played a major role in lowering the cost of real sex because now there is a cheap substitute available for men to satiate their sexual desire without the commitment involved in a real relationship. Not only does he not need to get married, doesn't even need to put in the few dates that's now with pornography, all it takes is the click of a button. The third market disruptor would be online dating. Now, if you met online, if you met on Match.com, all more power to you. Like, that's great. We're not saying like online dating is inherently bad. But uh, what is interesting to recognize is that overall in society as a whole, online dating benefits men overall. That because it expands his options, where after three dates, if she's not willing to have sex with him, it's easy for him to go, well, I'm going to move on to someone who does. The other fish in the sea has moved from being the friends in your kind of friend and social network to being uh, an essentially endless, unlimited supply of people to explore pursuing. This creates the impression that there's endlessly more options and opportunities out there. And we see this reflected in dating profiles online where men tend more to put things like looking for a good time, where women tend to put things more like not messing around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What all this essentially means is that sex has become cheap in our society, cheap in the sense of easy for men to access. Uh, the demand side of the equation has quicker access to the supply side of the equation without having to give much to get it. Uh, you hear often today that men are so afraid to commit, but the reality is they're not really afraid. The reality is they just don't need to commit anymore in order to access it in our culture. Now, a caveat here, this is not saying that women are the problem, right? Some can misunderstand uh, the economics of sex, and what's being uh, said here is something like, um, oh, if you're just saying, like, if women had kept the bar higher, then it wouldn't be uh, an issue. No, that's not what's being said. That would be uh, as ludicrous as blaming independent booksellers when Amazon comes to town for prices dropping, right? Like what the economics of sex is saying is that there have been a market disruptors, technological shifts that have radically altered the relationship market and landscape of our society and the cultural moment that we live in. And what this has essentially done has severed sex from some of its historic natural relationships. So birth control has severed sex from the procreative dimension, right? The natural ability to bring forth children. Uh, High-res pornography has severed sex from the unitive dimension of two persons coming together and becoming one. Like now, uh, someone can have sex, so to speak, with someone who's not even in the room. And online dating has severed sex from its historic connections to one's uh, social uh, circles, the social dimension, right? By extracting and isolating it with just the individual and the relationship market as a whole. What all this has done uh, has essentially made sex and dating very confusing in our culture today for many trying to navigate it. So that's our culture, but what about the church? Well, I believe for us as the church, as followers of Jesus, that Jesus is calling us to a new revolution, a new sexual revolution marked by a faithfulness to Jesus in our sexual lives. 
that men and women are both responsible, we're both responsible as men and women for how we respond to this moment and this environment that we live in. And for men, I wanna offer a quick challenge that uh, particularly for men who are dating or single who are entering into the dating arena, that you would not enter into it uncommitted and with the kind of just playing the field mindset uh, that is prominent today of keeping one's options open. Uh, If you're dating, I would challenge you to search your heart for your motives as you date, uh, looking to get married versus just looking to have a good time, right? I'm not saying that you have to, uh, on your very first date, pop the question and propose, right? Uh, But what I am saying is to be intentional with why you're dating. I was talking with a friend recently, and she said she was just on her third date with uh, someone she met, a Christian from an online Christian dating site. And on the third date, he said, well, hey, if you're not willing to have sex, then I'm moving on. And she was like, well, I thought you were a Christian. And he was like, well, I am, but I like to, and he used some crude, crass language. And I was just like, dude, you're going to stand before Jesus, man, with how you're doing that, how you're approaching the dating market. Now, what this, I believe, helps us too is to recognize there is still a power dynamic at play that privileges men in the relationship market. Not only historically, but still today, to recognize as men that, by and large, there is a uh, power dynamic that works in your favor. Uh, What we might call, in many today in language, there's a form of privilege, you might say, and uh, to be cognizant and aware of that means to uh, not to exploit it or use it to your own advantage, but to go, how do I enter the dating market Uh, the dating uh, arena, and love whoever I'm with like Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, Jesus commits to us before he unites with us. We should do the same. Quickly, for women, if as well in the dating arena, I would encourage you, don't settle or lower your standards uh, because of the pressures of our moment. Increasingly, I hear women saying things to me like, uh, if I don't sleep with him or move in with him, he'll leave. And I would encourage you to raise the bar in devotion to Jesus. Put security, your security in Jesus over security and relationship. Put faithfulness to Jesus and his affirmation of, of you over the affirmation of a man. Because Jesus, you can get your affirmation from him. He is better. He is secure. He is reliable. He is not going anywhere. And Jesus is in it for what he can give to you, not just what he can get from you. And finally, as we're going to see tonight, I believe as a church, what this means for us is that we would strengthen a healthy culture of singleness in our life as a church. Because the reality is it's increasingly becoming more of the norm in our culture, and the numbers are just going to keep growing. But the reality is, as Jim said, Jesus was single, Paul was single, we're in good company if you're single, right? And we need to see singleness as more than an in-between time waiting for marriage, but actually as a vocation that is equal in calling to marriage, if not even greater, right? So we're going to talk about that more tonight, but in conclusion, in the economy of salvation, Jesus paid the greatest cost to commit to us as his bride and to be faithful to us as his bride. And so we want to respond with sexual faithfulness in our lives as his followers amidst the pressures of our cultural moment. Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a question. (laughs) We're going to do two minutes of discussion, and the question should pop up here. Uh, But the question is this. How have you seen the economics of sex, any of those dynamics we talked about today, at play or at work in our culture or in your own life? Let's take about two minutes and talk about that. Go. We're going to go ahead and jump into a discussion about dating. 
What's the challenge with having a discussion about dating? The challenge is that dating is kind of like a modern world made up sort of thing. Um, throughout most of history and in most cultures, it had something to do with your friends and your family and probably some camels or something like that. And that's how people got married. And uh, the, the idea, one of the things I think that'd be really interesting is if you saw Paul, the Apostle Paul, if he showed up in the time machine and he saw how people selected uh, a spouse today, you know, so many things would be crazy. But one of them would be that people don't get the input from their family and friends, and instead they go to this giant screen and watch people, uh, you know, at the movies, shoulder to shoulder, and just watch romantic comedies, and then when they feel a lot of, like, warm and fuzzies towards each other, they decide to go for it. So to frame it up a little differently, since you're not going to find a lot in Scripture about dating, I think the way that we can frame it up is in 2 Timothy 2.22, when Paul, in his old age, is giving wisdom to, to young men and to Timothy as a young man, and he says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And a lot of times, when we talk about dating, we only go so far as the flee youthful passions. But there's also an active pursuit of faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so navigating that's hard. And so we're going to ask some questions about what that looks like. We've taken in some of your questions. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about them. So let me introduce you to my friends. My friends, the Yates, they're married. Um, but they're the only uh, married couple that when they were dating, I saw their video of their proposal and it made me cry. So I thought, so I thought you should jump in. Is that turned on, bro? Nope. Just push it up. All right. Hello. There you go. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. Proposal. So it's Continue. Victor and Molly Yates. Victor of Victor's Hideout. That's where you work, right? Yes. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. All right. So some wise folks in the church, I'm going to throw some questions your way. We'll have a good discussion. So... First one that came in, I thought that, that, was, uh, that was pretty interesting, was, um, uh, well, actually, we'll start with this one. What advice do you have for those who've never dated before? They've never dated before, and then there's someone who's gave them some chocolates on Valentine's Day. What advice do you have? If you've never dated before, my best advice for you is to lean on um, two sets of people. One, um, fellow believer who has dated and is maybe currently dating, so one of your friends, and pick their brain. And the other one, what I would um, glean from is a married couple and um, really ask them of uh, what they see of high interest and um, red flags to look out for in the dating process. Hmm. Yeah, so um, <laughs> we, I, have anything to add to that? All right, that's good. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you guys met and how you got together. All right, so we met through a sports ministry called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, we met 
had an event for the Fiesta Bowl. When was that? 2002? No. <laughs> I would have been 10. Um, 2013. Um, and we were friends for about three or four years, long distance friends. Um, and yeah, we started, our friendship kind of evolved one summer in 2016. And we dated, when Jim asked us to do this, I was like, sure, but we dated for like five minutes. So I don't know how much like wisdom. We, we dated for like three months and then we're married um, real quick. So that's kind of. Was that, was that, would you recommend that? It was the right move for us. Okay, so not universal. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, so I think one of the peop- one of the questions that came up a lot, it was some phrasing of the question, "How do you know if he or she is the one, like the one you should get married to?" And does that even, and does that even exist? Great question. What do you got? I put some notes in my phone so we could be brief. My literally my first note was, "You don't." Sorry, Vic. Um, <laughs> No, I think, I remember when we were engaged, so Ricardo and Holly Stewart did our premarital, and they made us read this book, and I didn't finish the whole book, but I remember one of the lines in it, don't tell them that, that I loved was they said, you always marry wrong, and there was something really freeing about that, just this idea of, like, you're not going to find this one person who you're like, man, they check every box, like, this is absolutely the one, like, there were some things I wasn't positive about some were really stupid like his clothes um but i think that this is victor of victor victor's hideout yes. and you're throwing his <laughs> yeah. clothes under the bus um but i think vic already spoke to this i think a big thing when it's like hey is this person the one is just wise counsel like we had people and we didn't just have people who jumped into the equation in our lives when we started dating and we're like hey i think i want to get married like these were people who knew us in singleness who'd walked through seasons of life with us Um, and knew us well enough that their input mattered. And so that was really important to us. So when there were things where I'm like, okay, I have this concern, or maybe I'm unsure about this, I had like wise women that I could process that with. Um, And it was really fun to be in a season where like, it was kind of green lights. Like it was like wise counsel after wise counsel is like, hey, this is a great, like this is a great partner for you. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, what strikes me is that there's this, with so many people that I talk to uh, who are are dating or pursuing someone, there is this deep anxiety that folks have because they're, they're trying to find the one. And it's judged by this, like, nebulous, like, chemistry or what are some other words for it? Like, chemistry or... Uh, it's a uh, passion. passion. Yeah. yeah, those sorts of things. But it, really what it is, is it's, it's infatuation. Mm-hmm. And infatuation is going to wane. Um, it's going to ebb and flow throughout a marriage, throughout a relationship. But what people are doing is they're watching romantic comedies. They're trying to see what's that feeling I'm getting from romantic comedies and how can I replicate that in some other relationship? Will those things only last an hour, hour and 30 minutes. (laughs) So if that's not good criteria, uh, the, oh, you know what? You said something about you always marry the wrong person. What did did you mean by that? What did you mean? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I realized I kind of left that like hanging there. Um, I think for me, and it was just in the context of like, 
Um, like Vic is not gonna check every box, nobody is gonna check every box that I have. No, like nobody is perfect, we're all broken and we all bring our junk with us into relationship. And so um, there is something freeing about like, I don't, I mean, this is a really important decision, um, but I, I don't have to pick a perfect person or else I mess the whole thing up. I think it gave us freedom to be human. It was really humbling to me to hear that Vic also wasn't marrying a perfect person. Like there were, I didn't check all his boxes and he chose to like show me grace and, and still love me and choose me. And so I felt a lot of pressure, which probably you guys do of like, are you nodding for that? <laughs> I checked most of them though, so. Um, but I think there's just this mutual like love and humility of like, man, we're both messed up and we're both choosing to enter into this together. Um, and it was freeing. It takes the pressure off of like, it's the first date and they better be the one or else I wasted this date. Yeah. So. I want to piggyback on that. <clears throat> I'm going to say that there are unique scenarios out there that are um, few and far in between where you do hear the person say, I saw Molly for the first time and I knew that was my wife and now we've been married for 20 years and everyone hears that in here and goes, that's what I need. Yeah. And the reality is like, that's not, um, God's not pigeonholed to move through that method and more likely than not, that will not be the method. And so I feel like that's a hard thing to digest because whether that's um, uh, one of your parents where you heard that story or a friend in the family or somebody's a mentor, as soon as you hear that and that gets into your psyche, you're like, okay, I'm next, Lord. And um, I just don't think that that's the case. But Molly um, did not tell you guys that when she first saw me, she called two of her best friends and said, I found that guy I'm going to marry. So, so, so here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I know a lot of dudes who, are like, who have that same feeling, but it's not reciprocated. <laughs> Preach. Now, yeah. yes, there's, there's been a plethora of, of people in my camp who said, hey, I found my wife. And then later on, it's clear as day that she doesn't um, want anything to do with him. And I'm like, maybe I'm the mediator of like, hey, yeah, I think she's uh, talking to Joey, man. He's like, nah, I asked her to coffee. And I said, well, you didn't tell her what coffee was for. So she said, thank you for the frap <laughs> and kept it moving. Yeah, because I mean, here's the thing. At the end of the day, a lot of folks can play that card as manipulation. And uh, that isn't a loving way of uh, pursuing a relationship. Come on. And here's how you know if it's the one, if you're married to them. As soon as you say, I do, you have found the one. <laughs> and that is who you are committed to. That is, that is scripturally backed to. That's right. <laughs> that's right. First Corinthians 7. So if, if, if looking for this nebulous, you know, chemistry isn't the way to just go about it. What, what is good criteria for uh, choosing who you will and won't date? That's a great question. Um, I'm putting myself on a time limit here. Um, I would say, for me personally, I went to characteristics that I was looking for in a mm -hmm. spouse. And um, I had four characteristics that were super important to me. And um, I could show you another journal where I had about 48 characteristics after a hard breakup. 
was like, Lord, I need this. And um, then the Lord was working some refining in me, and I got down to four. And that really helped me um, narrow out conversations. And in my um, dating process, I pivoted from opportunities if um, they didn't line up with those four things. And so um, the four were like, hey, alpha, like a leader of women, which Molly is a good job of. Ambitious that she was doing something um, with her life and like striving in in a workspace. Um, And then amusing. She makes me laugh. You remember the last day? Alpha. Athletic. She likes to work out. Uh, and, and part of that was important because I like to do that, so I didn't want to drag somebody who's like, damn, you're getting up at 5.30 to work out again? Come on. Like, and so she's like, she's a trooper in those yeah. four areas. So that's mm-hmm. cool. Would you add anything to that? Um, let me check my notes. No, I would just say, I think that was, I didn't have a list like Vic with all the, started with the same letters. Um, but I just, I would say, I think that, um, like I didn't grow up in a like in a Christian community, and so when I became a Christian as a young adult, like this whole dating and the lingo we use was so new for me. And I kind of everybody I heard would just say, "Well, you just they just have to love Jesus." And I'm like, "Okay, that's cool, but like, there's like thousands of dudes that love Jesus, and I'm not going to marry them all. And some of them like aren't that fun to me. So like, what else do you do?" And so I think that it's okay to have like Vic was saying, like. Hey, these are um, these things are important to me, and I want to enjoy my life with somebody, and I want to flourish with somebody. And so I think that's going to look different for you guys. Like if you're super into art and creativity, it doesn't mean you have to marry or date an artist. But like, is that person are they willing to learn about what you like and enjoy what you like? And so those things are really um, important to me. Yeah. So I have a like a five or so questions that I tell people to ask whenever they're dating someone. And I, I, I call these the contrarian's guide to dating because they they cut against the grain of what is often promoted in, the, in culture. So number one is, does this person display the fruit of the Spirit? What it talks about in Galatians 5. Not, is this person claiming to be a Christian? Because I think a lot of times people will say, They'll just say, oh, I go to church or I'm following Jesus. But that doesn't actually say much about their character, about uh, who they are, about if they're growing, if the spirit is at work in them. And so the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, does the the person have to be perfect in this? Well, they're not going to be perfect. Jesus is. But is this person are these characters increasing in measure? That is a display of the Spirit's work at their life and the character being formed more and more into the image of Jesus. Number two would be, um, who do I want to be married to at 70 years old? So anybody who's getting married is marrying either a future dead person or a future old person, right? <laughs> Think about it like this. The person you're, uh, you're, you're, you, when you get married, that's probably the most attractive that they will be, and it's all downhill from there. <laughs> so what is going to sustain at 70 years old at, uh, and, and, and when the person is an old person, right? Like that is an important thing to ask because you're going to be with this person for a long time. Next one is, uh, 
How does this person handle conflict? So important. Are you handling conflict in a way that really reflects the biblical vision of conflict resolution? And are you willing to actually engage in conflict re resolution? And if you want to be a, you want to work on one thing prior to marriage, work on conflict resolution. Um, do we have a similar trajectory of life? And I think that's a lot of what you guys were hitting on. Who are they serving? And, and then uh, how can I, is this a person that I can cultivate a deep friendship with? Because uh, attraction and infatuation will wane, but you need to have, be able to, the, the substance of the relationship is, is a deep friendship. So those would be some questions to ask um, as you're navigating if this is the person. So um, the next question is, is it sinful to live together before getting married? Hot pocket. <laughs> oh, man. Let me play it out. Hey, look, we're, it just, it's a good financial stewardship decision. We're giving the extra money away and we're living together, but we're not sleeping together. And, you know, we're going to get married eventually. So, so is that sinful? Is that wrong? Is that sinful? Is that wrong? <sighs> no, it's not sinful. Dun, dun, dun. But it's extremely unwise. Dun, dun, dun. And so when you look at it from a biblical perspective, you can't show me a verse where it says, hey, that is sin. But I think that it's really um, a bad move to do. And there's, there's multiple reasons why. One of them is the cohabitation before being married um, means that you're getting to experience something that is reserved for the confines of marriage. And so that's a great way for you to see some stressors that you're like, oh, I'm not staying for this. And you think that that would change with the person, but then you figure out that like, that's just a part of being married. Like Molly could tell you five different things that I do that she recognized after we got married that was like, oh, get me out of here. <laughs> but because we're married, you're not going anywhere, right? For the glory of God. And so that's like, that's just one easy way for like the confines of like cohabitation. And I think that early on, it seems like because it's a hip thing to do in our culture, just because it's hip, um, I think of 1 Corinthians 10, 23, where it says all things are lawful, but they're not helpful. They don't build up. And I'm telling you, if you hear one thing from me, hear this. That is not helpful for you in that relationship. And I think that you would be really wise to have patience and find another way. If you can cohabitate with someone that you're looking to get married with, you can certainly do it with a stranger of the same sex. So until you get married yeah. is, is my encouragement. Yeah. And, so, and so, you know, I think it's, it's obvious the, the, the question here is, uh, you know, not... Is it wise to sleep with one another before marriage? That's pretty right, clear right. That in Scripture. Yes, clear but, as day. But some Negative. people, some people, some people think that they can pull off the living together but not sleeping together. And I've never seen it. It hey. might be possible, but like it's like running, you know, the hundred meters in six seconds. Like I've never seen it happen Here, before. Here's here's what I would encourage you for because there's like there's rippling effects of this, right? So it's like. You're creating a habit where it's a move that is really unwise, but it's not labeled as sin, right? So you go, hey, we, we did that, whatever, whatever. And then you get married, 
And your flesh does what? Your flesh does what your flesh has always done. So you have this habit that you've built on of, hey, I'm going to do something that's not sin, but really unwise. And all of a sudden, that same action when you're married isn't um, isn't reciprocated by your spouse of like, hey, you're actually right. It's not sin for you to have lunch every day with your coworker who's of the opposite sex and talk about um, her favorite show, The Bachelor, Victor. That's not sin, right? And now people are like, oh, I mean, that's different. And they're like, no, it's in the same ballpark where it's not labeled as sin, but it's really unwise. And so if you think you're going to get away with that and you go, hey, you go unscathed, I promise you when the stakes are a little bit higher, you'll be looking back to a moment and asking God, how did I get here? And God can rewind the tape in your mind and be like, oh, remember when you wanted to flex? And so that's my encouragement of, hey, if you hear something's unwise, you'd, you'd be a, a wise person to stay clear of that. Yeah. You know, the other thing that stands out to me about that one is when I've heard of people doing this, what it does is it actually stigmatizes sex so that when you get married and you're, at, you're still living together, you feel like sex is a bad thing when it's actually a gift to be enjoyed in the marriage context. But you've gotten used to like acting like a married couple, but trying to avoid sex. And so... Um, one, one last thing before we wrap up. I'm going to give everyone a question, but I want to give one other point of encouragement that, I've, that I think is important wisdom for dating. Like, I think a lot of times the question of what do you do on dates never really gets thought through. And a lot of it is framed around being mutually entertained in each other's presence. Go to movies, go to this show, go to do this thing and be mutually entertained together. That's not what life actually is. And that's not how you get to know someone. So do it. It's fun. It's good. But once you get married, it's not just watching movies and going on dinner dates all the time. So my encouragement would be do some real life stuff together. Do a project together. Go serve some people together. Go make dinner together instead of having someone make dinner and go bring it to a homeless person and have a meal with them. Um, do these sorts of real life things. Go watch some kids together. Um, I know single folks are like, you're always telling us to watch kids. But if you want to get to know, if you want to get to know someone that you're dating, get them around some kids. Get them around some, uh, some uh, get them around your friends. Um, do, do those sorts of things. Do things that simulate more of what real life is rather than just being mutually entertained together. So my question for you is discuss what would be a good date where you get, where, where, what would be a good date where you get to know someone that simulates real life? So go ahead and discuss that and we'll bring the next panel up right now. All right, let's bring it in. Hey, so we are, uh, we're going to be doing a singleness panel. My name is John Crawford. I'm one of the pastors here, joined by Josh, who you just heard. Um, and then we've got three folks joining our panel. And uh, let's also just acknowledge that it's not easy for everybody to get on the stage, and, and this causes a lot of nerves for folks. So I'm super excited that you guys are here. So we got uh, Natalie Anderson, Erica Day, and then Nate Harper. And so uh, before we dive in just on conversation around singleness, uh, what I'd love to do is just give us a little bit of a framework, biblical framework, because we live in a world where singleness is oftentimes denigrated and devalued. Like it, it's viewed as something bad, typically. But when we look at the Bible, we actually get a, a way different picture. 
of singleness. Rather than being devalued, the Bible actually esteems singleness. Not just esteems it, but we see in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul even encourages it in 1 Corinthians 7. And so we have a different framework as Christians in this conversation that shapes the way that we think through singleness. And so we're going to be asking some questions to uh, folks. I've, I've invited them to be a part of this panel because they're people that I really respect and think that they've really tried to honor Jesus in their singleness. And so uh, I want to kick it off, though, to, to Josh. Josh, I want to ask you just a question as one of the, one of the lead pastors of our church, um, specifically around, around singleness. What does it look like? For the church to create a culture that honors singleness. Mm. First off, we have to understand, I believe the gospel honors singleness. As I said earlier, Jesus was single, Paul was single. Throughout church history, there's a rich tradition of singleness being elevated. As John mentioned in the Bible, we see that it's not only a vocation equal with marriage, some passages with even like Paul is single in Corinthians and going, man, actually it'd be better if you guys were like I was, you know, and, and, uh, and yeah, like, you know, Man, marriage, I think it's kind of saying like married people should be jealous of single people in some ways, right? So, so there's a, a gospel gives a robust kind of a big vision for singleness and so does church history. But I think we're in kind of a unique moment culturally today where often singleness is denigrated and that's often been kind of um, in, seeped into the culture of the church as well. There's a friend of mine, Preston Sprinkle, a theologian, he talks about how our culture and churches often in America, we can often treat singleness like waiting in line for a ride at Disneyland, right? Like where you're kind of in this in-between time until you get to the moment where the good stuff and the adventure really happens. And that's not the gospel's vision for singleness. And so I think we need to reclaim that gospel vision. And I, I think one of the you know imports of that is thick, rich community as the body of Christ. Because you can live without marriage, you can thrive without marriage, but you can't thrive without friendship. And that we need to be a culture, a church, followers of Jesus, where we're stepping into life together. As I've talked with many friends over the years, even in my own years as single, I lived with a family for a couple of years before um, I got married. And as I've talked to many folks who are single, being invited into the light where sometimes your friends get married and that's like they just, you never hear from them again, you know, because it's like different stage of life or whatever. I think as far as Jesus, we need pressing against those boundaries. And what does it look like as families to, uh, for those who are married, I call and challenge men, how can we embrace and welcome into our homes, into our families, into our lives, uh, those who are single and be family to one another. And uh, there's a great author, Sam Albury. He's got a great book, uh, Seven Myths About Singleness. He's single, he's celibate, but he talks about the power of having a house key to uh, a family, you know, that he was a part of the family, could, could come in. We want to be a culture of, as a church that's living life together in thick, rich gospel community with one another. That's good, man. Thanks, dude. It's a good vision for our church. Uh, Nate, I want to ask you this, man. Just on you being single, um, specifically, what, what messages have you heard from society about being single? Um, yeah, I think it's two, two uh, I guess, very drastic like um, points of view where it's one side is singleness is a time for selfishness or, um, you know, self-absorption. Um, that's even a real word. Um, uh, a time to, you know, um, make the most money you can. Um, just in general, just a, a time that's it's just for you. Um, do whatever you want to with your body. Um, do whatever you want to with your time. Um, and then on the other um, end of the spectrum, like Josh just kind of hinted to, is um, uh, uh, a stepping stone to marriage, or it's a you know it's it's the JV to the varsity marriage. Um, 
And um, like you guys already kind of alluded to, you know, First Corinthians is the complete opposite of the message we see. Yeah. Natalie, as a female, same thing. What messages have you heard from society about being single? Yeah, so I um, was looking at this question, and as I think, I think it's important just to like say in, in singleness, like when you're pursuing marriage and you're pursuing dating, and what that looks like is the messages from society are like really clear, is what I've seen in the last couple of years, which is this process looks like this. It looks like you have sex. If that's good, then you're like, ooh, do I, do I enjoy this person? Is this person someone I want to spend time with? Okay, yes. Like, all right, I'll be in a relationship with them. And then it's like, oh, this relationship is going well. Let's live together. And then um, the last thing is like marriage, right? And I think um, society just like cannot handle denying yourself of anything. And so why ever would you deny yourself of sex? And it's like this conversation that's like super awkward, you know, when you're out dating. But it's like led to a question that like, even like a strong believer, you start saying like, well, am I like, am I oppressed? Because you're telling me like, I need this to have a full life. Hmm. And, and it's, it's just gets at you. Yeah. So we get messages from society about singleness for both men and women. Then I also think for people who have grown up around the church, have been around the church, there's also messages that the church communicates oftentimes to single folks. And Eric, I know that you've been around the church, you've been around Christian community. I would love to hear just your experience. Like what messages have you heard from the church pertaining to singleness? Yeah, like you guys said, singleness is an amazing gift that has some, some blessings and opportunities that go along with it. Um, singleness has a freedom that marriage doesn't necessarily have, and not a freedom for selfish behavior like Nate was saying, but a freedom and a flexibility to love and serve others. And I think the church, Big C Church, hasn't always done a fantastic job of celebrating the good gift of singleness. Um, a lot of times I think it comes across more as a problem to be solved rather than a gift to be celebrated. Mm, And Mm. I mean, I've seen that in my own Mm. life with somebody saying, hey, there's this guy, can I set you up with him? And this is a Christian saying this, like, well, does he love Jesus? I I don't know, I'm not really sure. So, you know, it's just trying to solve the problem of singleness. Um, And I think there are a ton of fantastic resources in the church for marriage. We have marriage counseling and marriage retreats and marriage seminars and, you know, marriage series in from the pulpit and that kind of thing. But I think we don't always hear as much about singleness. Um, and I think singles too can do a better job at not being unhappy and being joyful in their singleness. <laughs> and that would probably also help paint a more biblical picture of what singleness looks like. <laughs> Wow, that's really good. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that we see, like the theological value of of singleness, it's not just a, there's not just practical value to it. There's actually theological value that in the gospel, singleness actually is esteemed because you don't necessarily need a biological family, right? Like it's not saying that a biological family is bad. Biological family is a gift from God, but what we see as the church, as Christians, is we get a new family. Right? We get to be a part of a community that is not just friends, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's an eternal family. Right? And so there's something about we oftentimes elevate biological family, but I think the theological value and a vision for singleness is 
you get to be a part of a family. Like we, as followers of Jesus, are brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's an eternal family. And so I think that's something that oftentimes you don't hear in the church, but we need to hear, right? Um, we need to hear that. And um, just what you're saying, Erica, there's, there's a significant value to that. Um, what I would love to hear from you guys as well, in your singleness, right? You guys have tried to honor Jesus, and I know it's hard. And so what has been the hardest thing for you about trying to honor Jesus in your singleness? Nate? Yeah, thank you. I think the elephant in the room in general, just for our generation, is sexual purity. Um, yeah. Uh, especially like we already talked about society telling you to kind of do, do your own thing, do what you want with your body. Like there's no ramifications of your actions. Um, and I think another thing as well, uh, for me personally, has been the hardest is realizing that um, a spouse is not a promise of God. Um, you know, there's nowhere in scripture that says if you desire a wife, you'll get a wife. Um, and uh, yeah, just those, those two dynamics, I think, are, are probably the, the most um, the biggest hindrance in our generation, especially like Warren will say, like we have the, uh, the, the Amazon Prime generation where you can just get what you want, get what mm-hmm. you want. Um, and I think we kind of apply that to dating and um, apply it to marriage where it's like, well, I desire this thing, you know, um, whether it be um, with sexual purity or I desire this uh, relationship or I desire this, you know, woman or man. Um, so I should get those things. So I think that's been the biggest, personally, the biggest struggle for me is just realizing like I'm, I, I, I'm not guaranteed a spouse. Um, and, that, and that's a good thing, too, because um, there's been plenty of things I've wanted and God hasn't you know, given me. And I'm looking mm-hmm. back and I'm thankful that he didn't give to me. Um, so one is understanding that, you know, he's, his thoughts are higher than ours. Um, and then uh, two, just realizing that, you know, not necessarily our desires are always align with his glorification. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, shaping our desires for his glorification, not, you know, going for what we want and then slapping a sticker saying, you know, oh, I'm glorifying God in this. Yeah. Erica, how about for you? Yeah, I think for me, it it comes down to identity. Where am I getting my identity from? Is it in my relationship status or is it in my status as a child of the king? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's the only thing that's ever going to satisfy me Um, Mm -hmm. because, yeah, I mean, it, it can be discouraging if you think about something that you've prayed for for a long time that hasn't necessarily materialized. Mm -hmm. But if... If, you, if I'm able to keep my gaze fixed upward, and that's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that I can do yeah. that, um, then I'm able to live a full and encouraged life. Mm, that's good. How about you, Natalie? Yeah, I would say, um, uh, actually, I asked, I asked you, John, a while back, like, hey, what, what do you think in like, dating? What's important? And you said um, these three things, like one, like an unwavering commitment to Jesus, a friendship, and attraction, but it has to be in that order. And I think I said that. Yeah, you did. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was That's good. pretty good. It was good. Yeah. And and I, I feel like um, that is something that like I've pursued, and and it's been good. And what I've found, and when I've reflected on like my past dating, it's been there's always been like two of those three things there, but they've never been all together. Mm-hmm. And um, I think kind of what Josh was saying earlier of like holding out for, like, not settling for someone who is, you know, you get along with and you're attracted to, because I feel like that is society's, like, measure is attraction and, and compatibility, um, but but actually having, like, to say no to something that society, like, is encouraging you 
to pursue has been difficult because, you know, I, I, I meet people and you meet people and you're like, wow, we get along so well and this is so good. And then you start to have deeper conversations and be, being able to walk away from that has been difficult. Mm. Thanks for sharing. So not everybody in the room is single. Uh, you got folks, Josh and I, we're married. Um, and so what I would love to have you guys speak to is advice for those of us who are not single in the room. What advice would you have for us on how we can love single people well at our church? And then even specifically on how we can be in community with people who are single. Yeah, I can kick that one off. So first of all, I think asking the question is huge. When people ask that question, it shows a love and a care for singles and a value placed on that. Um, so ask the question. You know, I've had friends in this church ask me, how can I better love and serve you as a single? And, you know, one simple thing that I told them was, invite me to sit with you in church. You know, church can be a really lonely place as a single person, especially if you're new and you're not super well connected. And it's awkward to go up to somebody and be like, hey, can I sit with you? Um, so just ask them to sit with you in church. Um, and then invite them to be a part of your life, whatever that looks like. You mentioned that, Josh. But... I, I had the opportunity to live overseas for a number of years, and I was far away from my family, um, so the people I was in community with there became my family. Um, and you know, sometimes it's humbling to ask for help, but it's in those moments where you really get to connect and build community. So there were some people that I was um, in community with there, and they're like, hey, you said you wanted to rearrange the furniture in your living room. I'll come over and help you move the furniture. I was like, sweet. Or I lived in this sketchy apartment that had a bat in the stairwell. And <laughs> I mean, it was China, so it was, it was interesting. But, um, and this, this friend said, hey, I'll come over and help you get rid of the bat. And the bat was smart enough to leave before he got there, thankfully. But, you know, things like that, look for tangible, practical ways to serve the people in your life. And singles can totally do the same thing for families and married couples too. It's really good. Natalie, what would you say? Yeah, I would say um, as a female, we all know there's like bachelorette party, bridal shower, baby shower, and there's like a thing called a sprinkle. And you're like, what the, like all these parties for celebrating like babies and marriage. And there are other like milestones in life. Like um, my roommate just got a puppy and I was like, that thing's expensive. Like we should have a, like a puppy shower for a you. Puppy sprinkle. Yeah, a puppy That's sprinkle. That's where the puppy pees all over your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But then also like when, when someone buys a house or when someone who's single um, gets a promotion at work or there's all of these other things happening in, in our lives that I think should be celebrated but are just kind of not because it's not in the context of marriage or family. Wow. Nate. <laughs> How about you, Nate? I, I agree with a lot of has already been said. I think... Um, <laughs> You know, understand you know what that person desires. Maybe they feel like they're they're called to singleness and not pushing them towards marriage, or um, you know, encouraging them in that as well, and giving them opportunities to lead and serve, um, um, and you know, make the most of their singleness. And if it's somebody that you know desires to be married, like being honest with them about um, marriage and um, the difficulties of it, and kind of a lot of stuff that's already been shared, like what what um, is biblically like what you should be looking for in a spouse, or how to conduct yourself in dating and relationships. So, yeah, so just, I think it's what makes sure both and understanding, like I said, just where that person is in their singleness. Maybe they just desire to be single, like they feel called to be single. So, um, you know, supporting them and um, giving them the most opportunities to make the most of that as well. 
It's really good. I think that's really good advice just for us as a church with a vision, wanting to have a robust vision of singleness. Once again, we are family, brothers and sisters. How can we include, how can we invite, how can we listen to our brothers and sisters who are living a life as single, whether it's for all their life or whether it's for a season, whatever it may be, but how can we include them and be a part of our family in community? And I think one of the important things in this conversation uh, around singleness and having a robust vision is specifically the way in which um, it kind of paves the way for a lot of conversations around LGBTQ. And so, um, Josh, I'd love to ask you the question, how does a robust vision of singleness affect the way that we engage in LGBTQ conversation? Great, yeah. As I've walked with a number of friends over the years who are attracted to the same sex, one of the things they've often shared with me is uh, that one of the real difficult things is this powerful myth at work in our culture that really says, in order for you to live a meaningful, fulfilled, full human life, you have to have sex, you have to have romance, you have to have those things. And uh, the reality is like, that's, that's a lie, you know? And it's because of our culture's deficient view of singleness that we don't. And so I believe that uh, not only for singles in, in the church body at large, but in more particularly for, uh, for folks who are in the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community and folks who are following, uh, who are going, I wanna follow Jesus. This is a part of my story. This is where some of my desires are and how, how do I walk faithfully with him? I believe we need to embody as a church like a healthy, robust vision of singleness uh, alongside marriage in order to make that really um, healthy calling. And so I think again, I mentioned earlier, Sam Albury, who's got this great book, Seven Myths for, About Singleness. Uh, he is attracted to the same sex. We call himself a same-sex attracted Christian um, and is, is celibate in the midst of that. And one of the things I love that he says is um, that marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, but singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Right. Wow. Um, the, the marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. Singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. And what he's pointing to, there he's going, marriage shows to it, it points to this reality that we were made for union with Christ. But singleness shows us the sufficiency of like, I don't need the... I don't need the sneak preview to enjoy the movie, right? Like, I don't need marriage to enjoy union with Christ. I can have the reality without the sign that points to it. And so singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel of going, I can be satisfied in union with Christ and his presence filling me, overflowing me. And I'm walking with a savior who is both the glorious bachelor and the great groom, right? Like Jesus is both the glorious bachelor in the sense that he was single. He never, you know, he never had sex, didn't get married. Um, Jesus gave up sex and marriage on the horizontal level in order to give his life for the reality it points to on a vertical level, union with us as his bride. And so that a healthy culture of singleness as a church, I believe, will make uh, it compelling and powerful of going, dude, we don't need to buy into the lie in our culture that I gotta have sex, gotta have romance or else my life is missing out, right? That um, if we can live into that well, that that's actually a powerful, not only a witness, but a resource for uh, those where singleness may be a, a part of their, their story lifelong. And as we do that, I think the only way that we can do that, as has been mentioned earlier, is by really developing thick community uh, as a people and that we would actually press into deep friendships. I think part of that myth in our culture is that the greatest friendship you can ever have is with your spouse in marriage. And I'm not saying that you can't be great friends with your spouse, but I think we have a reduced vision of how powerful 
friendship can be not, I don't know. Friendship has been so reduced because it's just like a friend on Facebook or, you know, like someone that I haven't seen in years and never really talked to versus going like a thicker vision of friendship and what it looks like to really walk together, to be in one of those lives and um, to walk together as a community with deep, thick friendships together as, as a people. Uh, I think that's where the power is at. Yeah. That's good, man. Thank you. Hey, would you guys thank our panel? And then I'm going to pray for us uh, and just kind of pray through the things that we've talked about. And then the next panel is going to make their way up here. So, Lord, uh, thank you uh, for the good gift of sex, marriage, singleness, dating. Lord, all of these things are gifts from you. We say thank you. Lord, we live in a society that, uh, Lord, sin has distorted these things. And Jesus, we want to follow you faithfully in each one of these areas. And Lord, we, we can't do that apart from your spirit. And so I pray that your spirit would empower us that we could follow you faithfully, whether it be in singleness, whether it be in dating, whether it be in marriage, or whether it be in sex. Lord, we need you. And we thank you. Amen. All right. So um, while these folks make their way off stage, um, you can grab that mic right there, Sadie. Um, I wanted to introduce you to Sadie Such. Go ahead and give her a hand. Um, it must have been five, six years ago or something like that when Sadie first mentioned this vision she had for creating a documentary, a documentary where she asked big questions about relationships and marriage and those sorts of things. And you, how long did you work on it? Yeah, like five, six years. Five or six yeah. years. And uh, she, like almost nobody else in society, actually stuck with a plan for like five years and created this documentary. We're going to show a trailer in a minute. But can you tell us a little bit about your journey to make the documentary? Yeah, I guess now it's been like seven years, but we actually completed editing it like a year and a half ago. Mm. So my originally, I had this idea like in 2009. I wrote it on my like crazy idea list, like a marriage film. And I was like, I don't know what this is. So I put it on the side. And then 2015, we started filming. And it really started from like, you asked what the journey was? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, it started from a question of like, I grew up in the church. I saw friends start getting married when I, I was 17. And then I started seeing a lot of people really unhappy, a lot of people getting divorced. And I was like, okay, well, this is like what I'm supposed to go to. I'm like, it doesn't sound like it doesn't seem that exciting. Everybody seems a little bit sad about it. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, what's the deal with this? So a friend of mine, she's also a filmmaker. We just started asking questions. We're like, what's the deal with it? Like if people talk about it real, then we can kind of learn. Because most of the story would be like, you need Jesus. And I'm like, okay, like practically, what does that mean? Like, so yeah, so we started interviewing people about marriage as single people. I'm still, I'm not married, so I'm still single. But then as we did that, the journey Again, at the beginning, I was like, God, I don't know what this is going to be one step at a time. And it was very like external. And so through the process of hearing everyone's story, it really made me look internal at my own belief systems and my own like view of God and myself. And so it kind of led from marriage to uh, understanding like trauma and shame and the lies that we believe our, about ourselves and really connecting to our story. Because I think if we don't really understand our story and understand the pain that we have and the walls that we have up, we're gonna really live like disconnected from people. So whether you're single or married, it's so important. 
And so, uh, yeah. yeah, there's, there's, so, much, there's so much stuff I could talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't know where to go. Let me ask you this. If you were going to forget everything, every conversation you had along the way, every part of it, of the documentary, but you could only remember one thing, one conversation, what would that be? I don't know if I can narrow it down to a conversation, but I would say the truth of the matter of the more honest you can be with yourself and not try to run away from your pain and not try to run away from the things that have happened, then you get to heal, you get to show up better. And then you can actually, the more you can be with yourself in your pain and heal, the better you can be with other people. So then when you're in relationship and you get triggered, you don't have to, you can respond instead of react. And then instead of pushing people away, you get to like draw each other in into like real intimacy. And so in the film, we also talk about like, what is intimacy? We talk about pornography that distorts intimacy. And so the more we can heal, the more like closer we can come to each other and be yeah. seen and known. Cause I think everybody's longing to really be seen and known. And we're all like hiding behind these walls, like terrified of each other, terrified of being seen. Cause what if we're not enough? But when we can like come around those walls, then we actually get to feel like feel known and loved. Mm. So. That's cool. Well, I admire your courage in doing it. I admire your skill in making it. You guys like are really good at that stuff. You know, it wasn't just like filmed on an iPhone. You asked some really good questions. Um, how can people access it? So you can follow us on Instagram at The Resolute Road. It's the production company. The film is called Where We Belong. And we actually split it up into six episodes. So now it's a little bit more digestible. And we're currently working on distribution. So if you go to the website, you can sign up to be notified when it's streaming. All right. And yeah. Yeah. So there are some uh, cards in the back uh, in mm -hmm. the, the foyer there um, that you can take and then you can follow it. And this is someone who's a part of our community who's made this really good documentary. Let's, uh, let's support it. And then uh, let's go ahead and watch a trailer of it now while the next panel comes up. Thanks so much, well, Sadie. Thanks, guys. Telling everybody a lie about what intimacy is. We didn't realize how heartbroken it was. If we went up to pieces because we'd forgotten that we belonged to each other. What they've trained their brains to be stimulated by isn't a real human being. For whatever reason, I believed in some socially constructed lie. All of these like secret fears that I had were brought to the surface. I think we're experiencing it, like, an understandable backlash against marriage. Trauma is going to push us into one of those extremes because we can't really trust people anymore. Okay, we have uh, our marriage panel now, AKA the failed singles. Uh, we've esteemed singleness enough to let you know that you've got, you're second guessing this now, aren't you? Um, so uh, what we have here, we have some of the wise folks in our church that uh, are go-tos for me uh, of different ages. So you have Warren and Jordan Williams over here, Ryan Janet Arneson, Will and Doreen Grant, give them a hand. 
So uh, all the folks I go to when I've got uh, marriage questions. So um, we're going to go ahead and jump right in with some of these questions that have come in about marriage. We're going to ask the first one. Um, I'd love one person from each couple uh, to answer this one. If you had to create a three-ingredient recipe to destroy a marriage, three things that would absolutely destroy a marriage, what would they be? Who's going to jump in? Arnie? Go ahead. Uh, okay, yeah, I'll jump in. Um, I would say the first one would be if you allow a voice into your... Jordan. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if you allow uh, a voice of authority into your marriage that that would rank higher than your spouse. So a friend, a family member that could come in and tell you to do something that would that you and your spouse don't agree on. That would be number one. Number two, if you could develop a rhythm in life that is the opposite rhythm of your spouse. You wake up early. She goes to bed early. You work in the day. She works at night. You have Saturday off. She has Sunday off. Like any rhythm that, and obviously there's seasons where that could be true in a life, but if, if you live two separate lives and are trying to remain married, that would be a great ingredient. The last one would be, um, obviously marriage doesn't go perfect. So if you could, it's very easy to cultivate bitterness and frustration in a marriage. So if you cultivate that instead of a thankfulness for your spouse, you'd probably be on the track for destroying your marriage. So yeah. Who's jumping in next? Doreen, go ahead. Unforgiveness, selfishness, and being unloving. Yeah. Who's taking it over here? I got it. I got it. Jordan. Uh, my first one, I realized that all of them were pretty much focused on like communication and arguing because I think yeah. you're always going to have arguments in a marriage, but it's important to be able to, I mean, it's true, okay? But so uh, you're always going to have arguments, but it's important to be able to argue well. Um, and the conflict is supposed to lead to, to growth together. Um, and so the first one was contempt because it's, when you have contempt in an argument, it's all about actually attacking the person's character rather than actually being able to work through something together. Um, the next one was using words like always or never um, because it doesn't allow for grace um, and it brings a lot of the past into a current situation. Um, and then the last one, <laughs> wish I had my iPhone notes with me. Oh yeah, that's right, thank you, um, <laughs> was mind reading or kind of acting on assumption act, rather than actually asking your partner what they're thinking. Oh, that's good. So nine total ingredients to mess it up. Um, <laughs> all right, so um, here's, here's a question of um, what, I'm gonna dive into some of the, the, the harder ones here. How do you cultivate affection after it wanes, like if there are moments when the affection wanes, you've been with someone for a while, you, we're blocking you guys out of this one. You're like the youngins. Um, but I want to hear from, from you guys who've been married. How, how many years have you been married? 19? Yeah, 19. And 25 in a week. Woo. Nice. Congratulations. All right. So, so what would you guys say about that? What, what do you do? 
when affection wanes. And so, I mean, that might be news to some people is that sometimes affection wanes. How do you cultivate that? I'll, I'll, I'll hit it. Um, you've got to make it important. Um, and then that's where creativity comes in. Um, if it's not important, um, you can get into a rut and all of a sudden you're living with a roommate, you know, it, it, it can happen. And so you, it just has to be important and it has to be important to, to both parties, uh, the husband and the wife. Um, but sometimes it's not. So the other person has to kind of bring the other one along. Um, and you have to, um, I, I think early on in marriage, sometimes you're afraid to say things. But as you're married for a while, you're not afraid to say anything. So, um, and, and you just have to be bold enough to say that this is important and we're missing it there. And I think the flip side of that is you can't take things personally in marriage so much. That sometimes things just happen. But if you take things personally, like it's an attack on your character or it's an attack on you as a person or it's an attack on you as a man. Oh, I'm not loving. I'm not. A f you know, that's a killer. Yeah. That's a killer. So. Yeah. OK, this is a tough one. Um, I think I mean, Col look at this guy. There can't be uh, yeah, I mean, affection. Wayne, I don't know yeah. what that word means. Um, no. <laughs> Cultivate is a good word because just I'm a fellow gardener, Jim. Yeah. So sometimes the soil is soft and supple, just gardening terms. Like if things are easy to want to hang out with that person and be with that person. And you're, yeah, very, <laughs> I don't know how far to take this. But um, other times, you know, you're, the ground is tougher. So there's times when you feel like doing things, there's times when you don't. There's times when you feel like going on a date or, or um, all the things that go along with marriage, and there's times when you don't. And I think um, like how I'm feeling shouldn't always dictate my behavior, wow. right? A lot of times, behave, if, I, if I do what I know will cultivate our relationship, whether I feel like it or not, I realize a lot of times that really brought us closer, and it was a really sweet time together, um, whether I felt like doing it or not. Um, even, and I would say like the longer we've been married, the more we, we have four kids. So we flirt more at home. I would say like sometimes we, we kiss in front of our kids. I don't know if that's bad or not, but I feel like healthy, um, affection is good for our kids to see in proper boundaries, of course, but our kids will kind of roll their eyes sometimes, but if you ask any of them, they all like that we want to be together. And we'll kind of joke sometimes on a Saturday night, like, hey, it's a date for dad and I. Even though we're all hanging out, we're all cooking burgers and grilling, like, this is a fun family date for all of us. And it's a sweet time for dad and I, too. So That's good. Williams, I would love to hear from you about what are some of the smallest, simplest things um, that can strengthen a marriage. So oftentimes, I think when people are thinking about marriage and strengthening it, they're thinking about the grand gestures, the big thing that you can do. But what are some of the like simple day in, day out, week in, week out things? Man, I think a lot of it um, can be just asking your partner questions, like a check-in time of like, how are you doing today? Um, so often, I think our lives with the busyness of all that we're doing, we can just be running at full speed. 
And as we get wrapped up in all the other things of life, I think what can happen is we tend to maybe take our partner for granted um, and forget that, like, like um, Janet was saying, that marriage is something that has to be worked at. It has to be cultivated. Uh, you never get to just hit the easy button and just cruise through it. It takes a, a constant pursuit. And so um, a way to do that is just like, Week, like I think it could be a daily thing or a weekly thing. Like, how has this week been? What has been um, a moment that you've really we've really enjoyed together, or maybe it was a moment of frustration because um, you know sometimes in marriage, you know, you're going through day in and day out, and you're just trying to keep the peace, um, but really it's not really keeping the peace. You're just kind of burying the the bad until it comes out in a big way. Um, and so, you know, having those times where you can just check in, see where you guys are at. Um, can help to avoid or maybe not even just avoid, but like reveal things that are maybe happening below the surface and um, bring them up in a, in a healthy way rather than in a blow up fight, which, um, you know, that happens as well sometimes, too. But yeah. Well, anyone chime in here? What are good questions? Yeah. What are some good questions to have in your pocket to ask your spouse? How can I pray for you? Yeah. Because that my answer, our answer actually that we thought was that praying for one another is one of those simplest, it's one of the simplest things, but yet it's one of the hardest things. Um, what if you're having, you're at odds at a time, you don't really want to pray for that person then. <laughs> Even though you're married to them, you're supposed to go to sleep next to them, you know. So how can I pray for you is one of those great questions because praying for each other that helps develop, it reveals stuff in yourself that you need to deal with. It just covers a whole lot of things over through the years that you may not have the best question to get to. What's well, interesting that, yeah, I think that that's huge. And I would probably also include um, that sometimes you gotta pray for someone and you can't take the place of the Holy Spirit. Like sometimes God needs to do a work in someone and you think instead of the spirit being at work in them, you're just gonna nag them into like being a better person. <laughs> um, and so there's the praying, praying for them. And sometimes it's the, I see this issue and I'm just gonna, only God is the one who's gonna be able to do it. So I'll bring it up. I'm not gonna bring it up every second of every hour. <laughs> What are some other questions that you have? I, well, I, I was just thinking a lot of times when we get alone where our kids aren't around, the question I always ask is like, what are you looking forward to? What are you dreaming about? Because there's a tendency to get so busy in life that you forget that you could look forward to something. And my dad told me when I was a kid, everybody in life just needs something to look forward to. And it shapes how you think about life. And so if we're going to get together, I'm going to ask, Hey, what are you, what are you looking forward to? What are you dreaming about? And that's generally starts a very long conversation. So that's good. That's good. Um, what does it look like to follow Jesus together? So if the two become one flesh, they become one. What does it look like? Are there parallel ways of walking with Jesus what does it look like to follow Jesus together? What you got? Yeah, so, um, and we were talking about this. Um, one of the things is you need to understand what that looks like, right? I don't think people, and we did marriage counseling for a long time, 
And a lot of people don't know the theology of marriage, Christians. They don't, under, they don't know or understand what the Bible says marriage should be. And so um, you kind of can get off-center. So for, for us, when we were talking about it, you have to have the same priority that the Bible has for marriage as a couple, which is oneness. Um, so and I think we heard that in the beginning. If someone was to, was to ask you, what is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is oneness. That's what it is, that, that the two would become one. And how you see that and how you work towards that um, is, is critical in a marriage. So I think that's having the same priority um, in understanding the theology of marriage, which starts with oneness, is, is, is key. Anyone have anything else to say about that? Go for it. Oh, I was just going to mention, yeah, definitely in like um, practical terms. I think a lot of times as when we approach our, our faith, we can approach it at a very like individual level. So I think in even a practical level as, you know, you're praying and maybe God's revealing things to you, like sharing it with your partner, just having the openness, like, hey, God has been, I've been reading God's word and, you know, he's been revealing this to me and then you can spark discussions just around like, you know, back and forth what God is showing you um, as you're studying him and um, he's, uh, you know, speaking through his word and through prayer. I could add a little bit. Um, I feel like this was something we had to really grow in because when we were first married, we were both in college campus ministry. So our lives were in the same trajectory completely. And we were going to the same staff meetings and we knew all the students that each other were meeting and discipling. And then when we started having kids and I was staying home more with little ones, um, we felt really out of sync. Mm. And remember, we would really talk about, okay, wait, are, are we, how are we one? Because it doesn't feel like we're one. We're, we're not together anymore physically. But that's where I just think communicating, talking, um, and we would just like plop the kids in a double stroller for a long time and walk and walk and walk because that was our only way to talk uninterrupted. It was like a date for us. But just learning to just talk through everything that we do and we are best friends. So it's fun to talk through those things in our future and what we're doing in life. And so even if we're not together and we're not doing the same role or job throughout the day, we feel at one, one with each other. So um, what role does your family of origin, like your family that you came from, should it play and shouldn't it play on your current marriage? You yeah. guys want to take this? You seem a little antsy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, hopefully my in-laws aren't watching. Um, no. Um, uh, you we know can, what? like, blur you out. Yeah, yeah, just... Whatever. Edit that out. Um, no, the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, we don't enter into any part of our life as just like a formless blob, right? Like there are things, there are ways that we have been shaped and formed. And one of the ways that we've been shaped and formed in a large way is by our families of origin. And so there are a lot of like probably helpful things that we can take from our parents and um, maybe, you know, try to put into our, maybe, you know, if, you're, if your folks have like a healthy relationship and you try to bring some of those good qualities um, into marriage, I think that could be a good thing. But the reality is, is like your parents aren't perfect and there were some probably broken stuff that um, they did and that you may actually um, think is 
good or try to like bring into your marriage where you have to say like, hey. You got any examples? <laughs> Stop it, Jim. <laughs> um, no, um, yeah, uh, probably not. Um, yeah, the, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's just that recognition. And then there's, there's also like the reality of like, you've been raised a certain way, your spouse has been raised a certain way, and basically that's all you know. And so you can come in thinking, well, the way I've been raised was the right way, right? And that's the only way that, um, you know, that, that's the way our family should go because it's what I was, how I was brought up. And that's not true. Like, you have your own story, your own, your marriage is going to have its own dynamics, um, and it's going to look completely different than your family of origin. So I think, like, um, many things, you can, like, chew the, the fish from your, your families of origins and spit out some of the bones that aren't helpful. Yeah. Just, just to add to just that, at the, the same token, it can be easy to want to, you know, adopt all of the, the great things, but sometimes we can go on the opposite uh, extreme. And if there have been things from our family of origin that, you know, were incredibly hurtful or toxic, that you veer so much on the opposite direction, saying, I'm never going to do anything like that, but it can go almost to the other extreme and achieve a, a pretty similar result because you're trying so hard not to be. Um, like your family. So taking that into consideration as well. Yeah. I'll just add to that too. I'm not going to say much too, because my mom is sitting in here. So uh, <laughs> I'll talk about my dad, I guess. Um, no, I, I would say, I mean, in spending time with a lot of people that are married in this church, this is the number one conversation to have. And I think when you enter into marriage, you're entering in with a high level of expectation and a high level of reaction. And so your expectation in the, is that something would look like you thought was the way it's supposed to be. And then you react when it looks like the way it shouldn't be. And so most fights at the beginning of marriage, I think, are not a reaction to your spouse. They're a reaction to your spouse looking like your past. And your spouse letting you down is not a reaction to your spouse. It's a reaction to, I expected you to be this way and you're not that way. And so I'm let down. And so all of that comes from family of origin type stuff. So it's, it has an influence from the past and then it has an influence in the present, how much you're going to let that in to your marriage. And that's, that has to be debated amongst each yeah. couple and, and, and the levels and the boundaries that you take in that um, are, that takes a while to establish. Yeah. One of the biggest fights we ever had was that right there because of that. Um, but again, it goes back to the scriptures. Leaving Cleve, um, you know, most, not most, there's a lot of guys who are mama's boys and there's a lot of women who are daddy's little girl. And when you come into a marriage, the, what that language of leaving cleave is, is that the man leaves his mother and father and forms another family unit. That's what it is. It's a new family unit. Her father is not the leader of your family unit. Your father loved her as a daughter, but now you are the man in her life. He gave, the, the wedding is, is, the theology of wedding is, is awesome, but her father gave her to me. He said, I protected her until now, and now I'm giving you my daughter. 
to to protect her and love her until she dies. Mm. That's what that, and so it's huge. And by her joining with me, she is saying the same thing, that I am coming out of the leadership and authority of my father, and I'm coming under the leadership and authority of another man, me. And so I don't see her, even though I have a wonderful relationship with my mother. Mom's number two. Mom's number two. So that's, and, and that comes from theology, the theology of marriage. It comes from that. So that's yeah. good. So we'll close in that vein. Um, just quickly, if, if you could encourage anyone who's married to read one book of the Bible together, to pray through one book of the Bible together, what would it be? You guys want to start? Yeah, um, I always love the image of Jesus laying down his um, life and loving sacrificially in Philippians 2. Um, I think that is uh, a very, you know, as we as you try to love your, your, your partner um, in a way that's sustaining, it's going to take emptying yourself of pride, emptying yourself of contempt, emptying yourself of the parts of you that only um, want to um, preserve yourself versus looking at the needs of the other. Um, and so... Yeah, I would say especially that poem of Philippians 2 when, Jesus, when it talks about Jesus laying down his life and emptying of, his, of himself is the, the model of how we can love our, our spouses sacrificially. Great. Philippians, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'd say the book of Ruth. Ruth. Yeah, I think that's a great picture. I don't know if you... We have different books, so... Uh-oh. <laughs> no, that's a good book, too. I love Proverbs, I think, because I'm so practical that I love... It always speaks to me of marriage, child training, pride, stiff-necked. I mean, just there's so many good things you can get to me that I love that I could go over with over and over. Were you on the same page with Philippians? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think we're on the same... Yeah, we're on the same page. Uh, it would definitely be Ephesians, um, first part of the book, what God has done for us. Um, and then to me, going into chapter five, talking about how Christ loved the church and we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. But I just want to add to that is Christ loved the church by forgiving her, mm-hmm. by making her the church. That's primarily how we became the church is through the love of Christ. And so for you guys out there, your wife doesn't even qualify to be loved like the church until she sinned against you. And when she sins against you, imagine wives and husbands, imagine being married to someone who would forgive you for anything. That's the kind of that's the kind of man that all women want to marry. And that's the kind of man I want to be. And that's the kind of love I want to have for my wife. Amen. All right, so we're going to close with that. We'll let that be the last word. Uh, We did not cover every question and every topic that should be covered in this. So uh, we're going to carry it out over the next couple months. So go to the All of Life podcast. That's, you know, in all those places, right? All the places. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. (laughs) All right. And uh, you hear Warren's smooth voice and you hear my profound insights. Um, And so go ahead and check that out because we're going to cover a lot more over that time. And with that, let me just go ahead and close this in prayer and then we'll be done. Father, we thank you uh, for the reality that our singleness, our friendships, our marriage, our dating relationships, 
that all of these come under your kingship and your authority. And they will implode uh, if it's not for your sustaining grace. We pray that you would give, you would bless us so that we could be a blessing in our relationships. We pray that you'd give us wisdom for the deep questions that we're asking, healing for the places where we're in pain, and eyes to see beyond just ourselves, but to see one another, and to understand what it looks like to help each other walk with you. God, we pray uh, that in all of these things, in all of these relationships, in all these questions, that you would be seen, and that you would be known, and that you would know that you know We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of the All of Life podcast. To get more information on Redemption Church Tempe, you can download the Redemption Tempe app, or you can send an email to tempe at redemptionaz.com.